Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhasa Udandamang sangang namasami What, what is so uh, obvious, simple, and quite amazing is that uh, as you practice, the amount of stuff that can go through your mind in a quiet day, and uh, just go through it, and you get to the end of it, and you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> like where you started from, there's all these stories and feelings and impressions of arisen and past and beliefs and convictions and pain and pleasure and assumptions and presumptions. And what was all that, you know? It's the sense of you know, holding that frame of reference to onto the mind. uh, these conditions, these experiences that pass through it. At the same time, at the end of the day, you're neither better nor worse nor anything. Just like, still here. What was all that? The power of mindfulness, mindfulness and full awareness, just to keep uh, referring the experiences that happen, pleasant, unpleasant, confusing, profound, boring, disappointing, just keep referring them to, to awareness, just awareness rather than reactions. Or we react in these, as soon as you can, getting the mindfulness to refer the reaction to awareness. Here I'm getting upset, here I'm getting confused, here I'm blaming somebody, here I'm this, that or the other. Oh, there's that one. Mm -hmm. Quick as you can, get to just refer that to awareness. It's awareness, it's one of the fundamental properties of mind that we have the ability to know, to receive impressions. Now, how do we know anything? Because you, you... Something, when you receive an impression, something shifts. There's some sense, oh, that's that, it's registered. And yet whatever's registered is not the mind, not the awareness, it's just something that happens to it. The Buddha succinctly presented in his foundations of mindfulness, establishments of mindfulness, this is the mind affected by greed, this is the mind affected by joy, this is the mind affected by hate, this is the mind affected by love, this is the, un- this is the restricted mind, this is the unrestricted mind. That- so the mind is affected by these, but none of these are actually the mind. These are just the, th- the 
effects that happen to it. And in practice of meditation or sustaining mindfulness, you're just bearing witness to that. There's this quality of primary openness or original openness, which we all experience as our mind. It's, it's like that. And uh, it's open. And things happen to it. And there's a, some there, there's also this desire, this, this feeling that we should be able to fill that openness up with some knowledge or some set of data or some view of life or some strategies, how it's all going to work. We should be able to fill up that space with something that's right and good and proper and exact and so forth. And whenever you do, you get somewhere before it crashes. Because the nothing that your mind can create that ever really gets it right, gets it pretty good or somewhat good or good some of the time or not good a little bit of the time, but it never gets it right. It's always something where, it, you know, every belief, every system, every strategy, every technique, every thing we do in order to make our lives get it sorted, get it established, get it figured out on the right track gets somewhere but yet doesn't quite do it. Mm. So this is what's the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of it all. And yet even within that we can keep referring back to this sense that we can we can witness, we can know that experience. Here it is again. Something else that's formed, arising, well meaning, trying, not getting it right. Okay, here we are. Here we are, start where we started from. This is like an original openness. Uh, and when we uh, come to any kind of endeavor, spiritual practice or whatever, that sense of openness is, comes faith. We have some feeling of, this could be worthwhile. Something good for me here, something useful, meaningful. Yeah, I could try that, with that faith quality, that. And then we get motivated by that. You get motivated and you start to apply energy to that. And then, you know, the important thing then is to really use the energy to be bear it in mind, to bear in mind the nature of things, the dumber of things, that things arise and pass, things are changing. Not to make anything solid or a person out of it. And this, of course, is... uh, you know, pretty easy little phrase to trot out. <laughs> but living it out is somewhat different <laughs> because of the power of feeling. power of feeling, the power of mind states, the power of what the mind can create. Yeah. So, though, you know, you say, well, everything is passing and changing. You wait till you feel some pain. And suddenly that little phrase doesn't sound so good anymore. You know, pain, physical pain, mental disturb, mental pain, upset, hurt. The fact that it's impermanent doesn't really seem as important as the fact that it's painful. So the power of mindfulness is developing it so that we can refer these, all these experiences to just this sense of awareness of it. Not that it, you know, not even trying to 
make pain go away or like the pain or be, but just be aware of that aware of whatever reactions happen to it referring things to this open space noticing how that the mind contracts around feeling unpleasant feeling it tightens up around it tries to resist it tries to push it out Pleasant feeling tightens up around it, wants to hold it, wants to make more of it, wants to restore it up. Yeah. And there there exactly is the is the problem. Not the feeling. It's just feelings doing what feelings do. They happen. We are feeling creatures. But it's that reflex of holding it, upadana, contracting around it, feeding on it, trying to feed on the pleasure, sustain it, store it up have it there or trying to resist the pain the difficult stuff not have it yeah and all the complexities that occur around that it's reaction this uh, upadana clinging feeding on and you have to wear it out really Yes, because there comes a point which you begin to, something you begin to realize there's only one thing that can shift here and it isn't the feeling. <laughs> what can shift is the clinging to it. So the unpleasant feeling, you could try to, you know, but you could, you could just open up and let it be there. Mm. Trying to hold on to the pleasant feeling, you you know, gets to be stressful, manipulating life, trying to make it pleasant, comfortable, convenient. So I don't have to work too hard or strain or struggle or get dirty or be tired or be grumpy or be with things I don't want to be with. Trying to wangle your life around to make all that happen. Oh, no, it's just, just let it be the way it is. It's too much. You know, too much stress. In, in trying to make life the way one wants it. <laughs> so they just trust the openness instead, trust the non-contracting. Or whenever we contract and tighten up and, and hold on to things, then just realize that something's got to give here. Yeah. And it's, it's so important to bear in mind, to be mindful of that openness that is there for us. Is out you could say a fundamental nature of mind is this openness. You go back to that. Whenever you let go, you go back to that. You realise it's rather oh light, open, just you know, state, ground. Yeah. Returning to that time and time again, you get more faith, more confidence in your in that quality, and more confidence in your ability to keep. Returning to it. So what's called sati sampajanya, mindfulness and full awareness, is just this process of holding, bearing with experience and referring it to awareness, rather than referring it to reactions, to views, to perceptions, to the way things should be. Just referring it to awareness. Feels like this. That's what happens. Uh, and quite a bit of our practice is just trying to, you know, 
dissolve some of the complexities of our life to get back to that sense of just the feeling. Because the feeling is where it hits, where the reaction starts. So you might get a, a, a physical feeling is fairly straightforward. It's straight, it, you know where you are with that. It hits you, pleasant and unpleasant. It's the mental stuff that's tricky because it's based upon perceptions or impressions. What's polite, what's friendly, what's comfortable, what's interesting. I guess we all know what those words mean, but we probably fill in rather different experiences for those under those categories, wouldn't we? What's polite, what's friendly, what's interesting, what's comfortable. What's the big one is what's normal. <laughs> what's the normal person? <laughs> she would say, "Why are you so? Aren't you? Aren't you act normally?" You know. Well, okay, who's the normal one? And you realise that nobody normal. <laughs> yeah, except people want to be normal to a certain extent to be accepted. So, yeah, so we have these perceptions of. Not the straight, the right, the good, and normal, but we don't all agree upon what those things mean. So then, when things are not right, straight, good, fair, normal, polite, friendly, and so forth, according to my standards, then there's this sense of my perception is jolted. I feel confused. I feel estranged. I feel then the then that gives rise to an unpleasant feeling. Then I feel what's wrong with everyone else, or what's wrong with me, or why is it this way or the other, what should I try and do, why I tried so hard, I didn't, and you just get caught in this whole spin of mental creations, mental formations. Why do they let me down? Why do they da-da-da-da-da-da? Wouldn't it be nice if this? What's the feeling? Unpleasant feeling. And community life is very much this experience because living together with 10, 20 other people, you've got a whole range of, of different senses of what's nice, friendly, pleasant, quiet, suitable, even what's mindful, you know, what's dumber. A range of that. So living with that. And uh, and then we can, of course, hold our views, our differences. Our mind tends to create these and try to hold them because it gives us a sense of stability and purpose and I'm this and that's why we organize ourselves around our views. So views are the most things that are most tenaciously held, particularly more so, I think, in monasteries because you don't have really much else to hold on to. You know, whereas in, in lay life you've got a bit of money, you've got some freedom, you've got independence, you can pick what you want to eat, you can wear what clothes you want, you can be friends with whoever you want to be with, switch something on, jump on a basket in a car, drive, da-da-da-da-da. There's all kinds of things that you can... So you don't really have strong views because there's all sorts of things that you've got that you can have for yourself. You decide how you're going to dress. You decide how you can do your hair. You decide what you can do today, you know, you decide what you're going to eat. Monastic life, chop, all gone. <laughs> so the only thing you've got left is your view. <laughs> you know, 
the one that they're not going to take away from me. Yeah. So they can take away my my sneakers, my jeans, my, cut my hair off, refuse to really give me the food I eat, you know, be the kinds of people I don't really see eye to eye with, dip me in situations I didn't want to be in, follow routines, I've got routines, be in an open place where people can come in and out, they don't necessarily haven't decided or invited, I think, what have I got left? The view. So the mind then moves towards that. This is a decision. It's, it's kind of what happens for people. Because it's something we can hold, store. So, you know, then, of course, the tendency is to find it uh, clashing in views. And it takes... It's a sign, actually, I think. It's a sign of uh, some maturity community when generally in this community there isn't such a big clashing on views which I think is pretty remarkable or at least people keep it quiet <laughs> which is which is also remarkable <laughs> because as a meditator eventually you know you get the point of what's more important, my view or my peace of mind? Mm. What, what's the thing that, because, you know, what's the thing that's going to cause me least conflict? Eventually you go back to that, that sense of just openness, staying open to it. And this is something, you know, you get locked and the ability to come back to it again, to that open space that says, well, here we are. Mm-hmm, yeah. So you really start to understand a lot about what the mind does around feeling, how it how it seeks security, how it wants to get things sorted out so that we can feel comfortable and sit safe and have things go our way, and then what happens when that gets challenged. So a lot of the time, you you know you realise that in terms of what you can do from that openness is just the bringing forth the good intention because intention means it's general motivation or attitude aspirations that's what we can do and if we don't do that life gets very stale we just kind of sitting there being passive so our, active, our activity is to certainly keep referring things to awareness keep referring to the intention in the moment you know what we're trying to bring forth just in terms of our clarity or our patience or our resolution or just a little more patient, just one more bit of patience, you know, moment at a time, something you can do. In fact, it's the only thing you can really do that you can, the only thing you've got. Everything else is affected by causes and conditions that you'd have not much say over. So the intention is is uh, and then you have what's called the conventions, which are just the ways in which we live and they don't always match up conventions are the rules systems everybody lives by 
different ones. Here we live under the system, vinya system, conventions and routines. And they don't always match up exactly. Yeah. So I remember this, this, this uh, memory came up there about this time when, um, back in the early days of Chithurst, when it was pretty rough, and uh, we were all sharing rooms, two or three people in the room, which was okay because I'd lived in, I'd shared rooms for much of my life, so I didn't have a problem with that particularly. Other people did, depending who you got, <laughs> who you got to share with somebody who snored or whatever. <laughs> but we were all kind of lumbered, lumped up together, and uh, and it was it was fairly hard. Yeah, it was hard working all day long and um, so on. Cold and hard. I mean, everything's communal, so we'd all have tea together in the mornings. We'd have a uh, morning meeting in the reception room, I think. Which is, you know, we'd all, the whole community would sit in the reception, these two big platters, plastic mat things, with one with a big pot of porridge and with a, one with a pot of tea on it. And you'd, you'd sit and everybody passed it. There'd be one person behind the porridge and tea, who was the server of the day. And if we passed their mugs along, and you'd sit there in this communal situation, imagine some made up on a chair, on a seat, two other monks beside him, all these cups going up to this person with the porridge, and then start to put porridge in the cups and pass them out. And you find, it, this, well, this isn't my cup, this isn't my cup, where's my cup gone? And you get all this porridge, and he just start to eat his own porridge, and then the person, the first person had eaten their porridge, had finished their porridge, they pushed their cup back in order to get the tea. So this guy was just starting to eat his porridge, and the cup would come back with somebody prodding him in the ribs, tea, where's my tea? <laughs> so he mindfully put his porridge down, picked the cup up, put some tea in it, pass it back, pick his porridge up, and he'd get another prod in the ribs, another cup come back, tea. So <laughs> this poor guy... <laughs> this whole scenario every morning. So eventually nobody wanted to be the serving person because <laughs> they was in this situation of getting their ribs poked and people demanding tea. <laughs> so you get this kind of strange thing. The intention was, you know, the simplicity. To keep it simple, everybody get their own, you know, have this one person turning out the porridge. No choices, no preferences, really good. And then just the tea as it was. But then the tea, you think, God, what's this tea? This is disgusting. Who makes tea like this? Ugh, you know, somebody that's too strong. It's too weak. It's stewed. It's too sweet. There's no milk in this, you know. There's these feelings. And often this would be going on very subtly, like people weren't supposed to complain. So this, you really got little grunts and then moods coming up in your mind because you didn't want to be expressing it out loud so it's just this <laughs> seething mess <laughs> of discontent <laughs> and then uh, somebody the work might kind of handing out the, the duties of the day <laughs> in this bad mood having had your rotten porridge cold porridge and rotten tea and somebody says I want you to go and shift <laughs> shift the logs in the morning. It's cold out there. <laughs> Think of your work allocated, sent off to work. And so you're getting this kind of 
whole mood of feeling fed up and, uh, and just stuck with this in this situation. We realized the intention was kind of simple. We all get together. Sounds like a great idea. Uh, keep it simple. We're not here for sensory delight. Just a bit of food, some tea, and get out and do some work. Should be straightforward, shouldn't it? <laughs> you put everybody in a room together and you see what happens. <laughs> Intentions. And then the convention, you know, so eventually, oh, gee, what do I want? So now we've got to, everybody gets their own porridge. <laughs> Go and take what, you know, just get into the kitchen and uh, you're trying to get so that people don't stampede or elbow each other out of the way. Just reasonably polite in the sense of just get your own porridge and a bit of tea and then go back, you know. Got past that one. So, you, you know, the intention is still the same, but you're just trying to find conventions that will uh, uh, work. Mind you, it works all the time. It's just that how much uh, angst you want to you want to get through in a day. I remember one time, because I really didn't like the tea, the person who made the tea had no idea about tea. And uh, they didn't drink it themselves. This guy didn't drink the tea. He didn't like tea. You could tell it by the way the stuff. (laughs) I think he had a personal issue about tea or something. (laughs) So eventually my mother sent me some tea. Oh, I've got my own little stash of tea. And uh, so that was nice. And then I thought, thought, well, this this is kind of noble. I thought it was pretty noble. Intention arose in my mind. I will make some tea, some real proper tea, and I'll make a pot for Ajahn Samedo and Ajahn Viradhamma who are living in the next room. They're sharing the next next room to me. I was staying in this room with Kitty Sara. So I get up in the morning, make the tea, get tea. I need some milk. So I got the tea, go downstairs, and I got so I say, any milk? Yeah, oh, wonderful milk. Get the milk, tea, sugar, yeah, sugar. Wow, tea, sugar, milk, I've made it. You know, they drink the tea, they go upstairs, getting the tray up, cups, right cups, the teapot, the tea, the milk, the sugar, take it to the next room, pour them out a cup of tea, put some milk in it, sugar, and then at this moment... Now, to backtrack a little bit, what lay people don't know, probably don't know, but I became, after this incident, stenciled on my heart, is that milk is counts as food, and food is something that monks and nuns can only have given after dawn, and it lasts until noon, and after that you can't have it. You can't store it up overnight, right? So milk counts as food, so you can't store that up. It's got to only be used dawn to noon. Tea is something you can have for a lifetime. It's great. So if you've had tea, you can have it for five days, six days, a week, a year. I had had this tea for about five or six days already. Now, the subtle bit is when you mix the milk with the tea, that mixture counts as food and it must all have been given on that same day. You get it? (laughs) It's a special piece of vinea 
arithmetic. It's all got to be given, the milk and the tea and the sugar, all has to be given on that one, that morning. If it isn't, if anything, any of it has come before that, then it's nixed. You can't, it's, it's out, banned, censored, finished, you can't have it. So what happened was, I'd had this tea for four or five days, the milk could only had in the morning, once I put the milk in the tea, it became forfeit. So I got my tea up, this devotional mode, brought to my fellows in the, in the holy life, to make them a cup of tea, proper English tea, these poor, deprived Americans would finally get to taste true tea. And I said, are you milking that tea? I said, yeah. He said, when did you have the tea? Oh, a few days. Well, it's, it's, it's um, finished. It's out. What? Can't drink it. Oh. And not only that, but the tea leaves that I had stashed away, that's all forfeit too. You have to give them up. <laughs> so the whole thing was kept for, it's this procedure called forfeiture. So not only had to give up the tea that I'd made, but all the tea I hadn't made, the tea leaves also had to be given up. So that was my <laughs> noble intention, hitting a convention. <laughs> and I seem to remember putting, I think, okay, fine, took the tea out, okay, that's my tea gone, and take it downstairs, and then just going out walking for about three hours, <laughs> just to sort of steam off. <laughs> some uh, intense feelings and then you come back and life goes on here we are you know, this powerful surge of uh, frustration and rage and then you come back to the monastery monastery just keeps going just keeps going another day it just keeps going it doesn't mind And the next day comes and it's the same thing, the gruel again, the same terrible tea again. And nothing, it doesn't notice, it doesn't find <laughs> what you think or feel. <laughs> and it, it's eventually just something you starts to... So it's naturally it's pretty painful. I think quite a lot of it is painful, you know. But uh, when you go through that process of washing your feelings and moods, wash up, burn, flow through your nervous system, disappointment, the mistrust, the negative moods you can have about people or people have about yourself, and just and then you come to mindful, referring it to awareness. So here we are, you know, new moment, just like that. And you get to respect that frame of reference that just holds it steady, that doesn't follow one's wishes and interests and inclinations. Otherwise you just keep shifting the reference. The reference is, this is a feeling, this is a mind state, it's like this rises and passes, some of them pleasant, some of them unpleasant, happy, inspired ones, interested, despairing ones. And it's so easy to believe and make a person out of one's sadness or one's um, goodness 
one's good intentions, one's despair. So easy to make a person out of them. But the conventions just say, well, good, bad, indifferent, another day, here we are, so what? Keep going. And you start to bring forth good intention, not because it, it matters in a way, because it feels good, because it's the right, it feels like the good thing to do, whether it works or doesn't work, whether anybody cares or not, you just bring it forth because it, it's the right thing to do. It's the, you've got a mind, this is what minds can do, this is where they feel happy, this is where they feel bright, bringing forth good intention. Whether it works, doesn't work, criticised, eventually, doesn't matter. You just go through that. You can't expect it to always come out as some sort of result in terms of the world. So you look at things like the disappointments and the I tried so hard and why doesn't everybody understand me and so on and so on and so on. I don't think, no, I don't see why everybody should understand me really. I mean, I barely understand me. (laughs) Uh, Where's that that expectation? What's immediate? I mean... Human beings be they are where they are. If you stick around long enough with each other, you get some understanding, some sense that it just happens naturally, some sense of fellowship, friendship, affinities, okayness, spaciousness, allowance. We get on. We're human beings. That that happens by itself. What happens right now? What's immediate? What's what's immediately available? Yeah. That things arise. Referring to awareness, let it move, let it pass. Here we are, just a sense of openness to it. And you start to bring forth the good intentions, but also hold them. You realise that if you start, intentions have got to always achieve results. No, no, that's not it. No, that's, that's asking too much. The only result an intention will automatically, by itself, give rise to is the, is the sense of what it does to the mind as it's happening. Is it brighten? Is it wholesome? Is it skillful? Not whether you know it's going to work in an external sense, whether you're going to get the results. So it just brings you back. But that's the bit you can have. The world, you can't have the world. You can't have people. You can't have a scene. You can't have it things sorted out. You can only have this. But this is the only bit you've got anyway. And it's really waking up to that. Is a tremendous freedom really because uh, when you've let go of the world or trying to have a world which you can never have anyway you realise you've, you've already got the only thing you can ever have. Yeah. But it's to be developed, it's to be rested in, it's to be sustained, it's to be attended to, it's to be carefully noted and just not to ask for more. But not to settle for less. Definitely not to settle for less. It's not about inertia. 
It's not about going to some kind of fuzzy, don't know, who cares, give up space. Mm-hmm. The brightness of the mind. We can bring up the good. It will arise. It's, an, it's also part of what's quite natural. But if we get hook it onto relationships with other people, teachers let us down, da 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 da, so forth. It's going. That's what's going to happen. So one of the qualities of mindfulness is this. It's a certain sense of restraint, modesty, um, soberness, beginning to be wise about really what's possible in this life, what is possible, what is really possible, and what not only is possible, but is of immense benefit for ourselves, for others. Is this sustaining this quality of openness to the present and purity of intention. It's simple. The path to that takes us through just about everything. Everything we haven't figured out, everything we haven't sorted out yet. It's quite a it's quite a workout. So at the end of the day we come back to you know, I always like to think of every day being like the time of death. Not because I'm particularly eager for that or bothered by it, but just it's a sense of, you know, if everything stops now, what am I left with? If everything stops now. All those things I haven't done, can't do them. All those bits and pieces I wanted to get finished. All the apologies I wanted to make. All little bits of misunderstanding they want to sort out. What happens if there's no chance to do that? You know, just spending some time being at that place and saying, well, just forgive, let it go, forgive, open. What takes me back to that openness? So then, you know, the mortality is one of our great gifts. It keeps us bright. So this is also a topic to be mindful of. Anyone?